This time I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews once again. Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. And we'll be studying verses 19 to 25. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, and I'll be reading to verse 31, but we're going to be focusing our attention on 19 to 25. So when you find that, would you rise out of reverence for God's word and let us read together. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the holy word of God. Let us pray. Father, once again we come before you and we ask for your grace as we study this passage together. But may it be more than simply studying it, Father. May it be our act of worship together as your church. But we worship you through interacting with this text and applying it to our lives and submitting to it. Not hardening our hearts or our minds against it. As if this is just the opinion of, of some man who wrote these things 2,000 years ago. But Father, that we should view this as the, the God-breathed word of God. That as we listen to it and are convicted by it and what it says, we pray that you would change us to be more like Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. This morning, we are going to look at three lettuces. Iceberg, butter, and romaine. No. No. Not that kind of lettuce. 
we're going to look at three times in our passage between verses 19 and 25 where Hebrews says, let us. Let us draw near, he says. Let us hold fast, he says. And let us consider. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider. But before we get into that, we we must understand something very important when we see the words, let us, in the Bible. What's so important when we see these words, let us, in the Bible, we have to understand that we are looking at a command. It's not a suggestion or a recommendation. It's a command when we see the words, let us. Scripture is commanding us to do something. And usually in Scripture, when we see commands, they look like this. Do, go, pray, walk, live, repent. And those kind of commands are easy to spot. But sometimes we can miss the commands that begin with the words, let us. Because that can sound like a suggestion that you can either take or leave. But actually, let us is a command too, just like those other examples. The only slight difference is that the person who is speaking is including himself in the command. As if to say, I'm doing this now, now join me in doing it. So for example, here is a clear command, walk in the light. And then here is the let us command, let us walk in the light. Which means, join me as I walk in the light. It's a command. It's still a command, but it's a command to join. Another example, live for Jesus. Let us live for Jesus. That is, join me as I live for Jesus. Or one last example, the command, repent of your sin. As a let us command, it's let us repent of our sin, which means join me as I repent of my sin. So my point there is that when we see let us, we're actually looking at a command as well. And so let's start with the first one that we see in our passage. Let us draw near. So verse 19 to 22 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If you are a Christian here this morning, you can have confidence, you can have boldness, you can dare to enter into the Holy of Holies. Why? Because you are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the sacrificial death of the Lamb of God on the altar of the cross that allows all those who trust in Him access into the presence of God. And if you recall, the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the temple in Jerusalem had the same layout. The outer room called the holy place where the priests would serve daily and then the inner room known also as the most holy place or the holy of holies, where only the high priest could enter only one day per year because this was where the presence of God was. 
And the thing that separated the two rooms or sections was a thick curtain. And this was the same curtain that was split in two from top to bottom the moment Jesus bowed his head on the cross and gave up his spirit. Why was the curtain in the temple torn in two when Jesus died? It was God's way of telling the world that now there was access into his presence. Not just the high priest one day per year, but anybody could come to God every single day of the year. And we might wonder, well, why was it split from top to bottom? The curtain was split from the top to show that this was God's doing, not man's doing. And so verse 20 in our text tells us that the new and living entrance into the presence of God through the curtain is Christ's flesh. It's a flesh curtain that we pass through to get to God. And you may think to yourself, a flesh curtain? That's gross. What does that mean? It means that the broken, bloody, beaten, mangled corpse of Jesus Christ is the means by which we can pass through from this life into eternal life. But verse 21 reminds us that Jesus is not just significant for the past, that he died in the past and was buried in the past and rose again in the past, but right now in the present moment, he is the great high priest over the people of God. We have a high priest who is right now interceding. We have a great king who is right now ruling. And we have a savior who is right now saving his people. And that brings us to the let us here. It says, therefore, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Let us draw near to God in worship. Let us not neglect to draw near to him. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What does it mean to draw near with a true heart? Well, that means to do it sincerely, to do it genuinely from the heart, not with a bad attitude, not because you have to, not with a begrudging attitude, not as though it's a chore. Check your attitude. When you draw near To God in worship, are you bringing a true heart or are you coming in hypocrisy? But Hebrews also says here that we are to draw near in full assurance of faith. That means we are not to come doubting or hesitating. When you doubt or you hesitate, that means that you're still trusting in yourself and in your own righteousness. But when you have given all of it up and you've thrown yourself completely upon the mercy of God. Where Jesus Christ is your only lifeline that you cling to with a death grip. Then you can draw near with full assurance of faith. Why? Because you're no longer trusting in yourself. You're trusting completely in Jesus. It says here too, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And I believe what is meant here by evil conscience is a conscience that condemns. God has embedded into the heart of each and every one of his human creatures a conscience. When we do wrong, our conscience condemns us for the evil that we do. 
And we can suppress our conscience. We, we can push it down as far as possible. But our conscience still knows right from wrong. And it tells us of our condemnation before a holy God. But when we put our trust completely in Jesus Christ, our hearts are sprinkled clean from the conscience that condemns us. And yes, we still have a conscience that convicts us and gives us sorrow over our sin. But it is no longer a conscience that brings condemnation when we sin. That tells us that we're going to hell. Now it is a conscience that tells us that we are bringing sorrow to Christ when we sin. And that's the difference. And Hebrews also adds, our bodies washed with pure water. This last clause here, referred, or the last clause before, referred to our inward state, that of our hearts. But now this clause points outward. It reminds us of our baptism, where by faith we have been clean, cleansed inwardly, but then the waters of baptism symbolize this cleansing has already taken place in the heart. And that's why we believe that infant baptism is not right. If you were baptized as a baby, you've not been truly baptized according to the Bible. Because in the Bible, baptism always follows or comes after faith in Jesus Christ. When a believer is baptized, he or she is identifying with Christ, with his death, burial, burial and resurrection. But baptism is also a symbol of of cleansing, of being washed clean, of being purified. It is the symbol that our sins have been washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiven and forgotten by God. And so the first, let us, is let us draw near. Let us draw near to whom? To God. Where? Into the Holy of Holies where God dwells. Why? To worship Him. How? By the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. With what? Confidence. With true hearts sprinkled clean and bodies washed with full assurance of faith. So in response to this first command, let us draw near. Are you drawing near to God in worship? Maybe you've stopped drawing near. Maybe you're stuck or stalled. Maybe... A bad attitude of bitterness has prevented you from drawing near. Maybe sin is preventing you. Maybe idols are getting in the way. Maybe you're actually going in the opposite direction, not drawing near, but actually backing off, backing up, backing away. Scripture commands if you are a true Christian to draw near, to move forward, to grow in Christ, to press on that upward way. Remember the parable of the servant who buried his talent in the ground and trembled because of the harsh words that Jesus had for him. So that's our first let us. Let us draw near. The second let us we see in our passage is let us hold fast. That comes in verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. This is the second let us command. Let us hold fast. Hebrews is saying, join me as I hold fast. Let us hold on tight. To what? 
to the confession of our hope without wavering. It's a confession. That means it's an outward verbal statement. It can't be held inward. It can't just stay in your heart. It's a confession out of your mouth. Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you cannot say out loud that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then how can it truly be in your heart? Jesus himself said that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he was talking about sinful things in that context, that if your heart is filled with sin, then eventually it's going to make its way out of your mouth. But that's also true with good things. If your heart is filled with Jesus Christ, that's also going to come out of your mouth. But the confession is not only an action here. It's also the message. The confession that we are to hold fast to is a specific message. It's the good news. It's the gospel. The gospel is the good confession we make before many witnesses when we are baptized. The gospel is the good confession that we make when we join a new church that has not witnessed our baptism. The gospel is that God is holy, but we are unholy. For we have broken his holy law, and we all deserve his holy justice, which is eternity in hell. But because of his great mercy, God sent his holy son into the world to live the holy life that we could not live. And then die as a holy sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to God. For all those who place their trust in Jesus Christ alone, his holiness becomes our holiness. We can now by faith enter into the holy presence of the living God for all eternity. The gospel is future oriented. Because of what Jesus Christ did, we are looking forward to the day of judgment when we will be delivered from the holy wrath of God. And therefore, Hebrews calls this our hope. And what do we do when we see this word in Scripture? We capitalize it. And maybe you're getting tired of hearing me say that, but I'm going to keep saying that until I'm blue in the face. Why? Because it's so important that we understand that we do not understand hope to be a form of wishful thinking. Rather, it is a firm and sure and certain expectation of salvation on the day of judgment. Our capital H hope of salvation is so sure and so certain that we can talk about it as a present reality. I am saved. And then even a past reality. I was saved. If our hope were a, a piddly small H hope, then we would say, I may be saved in the future. Perhaps I'm saved now. I might have been saved. But because our hope has a capital H, we can say, I shall certainly be saved. Therefore, I am as good as saved. Therefore, I am saved. And I have been saved. Yes and amen. Because we confess a capital H hope, we hold fast to it without wavering. A wavering faith is a doubting faith, and a doubting faith has forgotten what it is holding fast to and why we must hold fast to it. The oldest son of King David was named Adonijah. When King David was old and dying, Prince Adonijah decided to make himself king over Israel. 
and he threw a party, big party, with key nobles and important commanders of the army. And at this party, they proclaimed him to be the new king after his father David. But David had promised the throne to someone else. David had promised that the throne would go to his son Solomon. And so from his deathbed, David placed Solomon on the throne. And when Adonijah heard that Solomon had been installed as the new king in Jerusalem, he knew that he was a dead man. So what did he do? He ran as fast as he could to the tabernacle, and he grasped one of the four horns sticking out from the altar, because the altar in front of the tabernacle had four horns on the four corners, and he grasped onto one of those horns sticking out from it, and he refused to let go of that horn until King Solomon granted him mercy. And that's just what we do. We know that each and every one of us is a dead man or a dead woman under the holy wrath of a holy God. And the only place that we can run to is the altar of the cross. And we lay hold of that cross and we never let go because only in the cross is mercy found. But if we forget, if we forget why we need to hold fast to the cross, if we forget the wrath of God is breathing down our neck, if we don't feel the heat of God's judgment threatening to consume us whole, if we let go of that cross, then what's going to happen? We're going to begin to waver. We're going to doubt. We're going to wonder if it's all really worth it. We're going to look around at everyone else who is not clinging to the cross, and they seem to be doing okay. They don't seem to be so concerned. They might even seem more happy, enjoying their lives, living for themselves. And maybe we will begin to relax our grip a little bit. And we won't hold on so tightly. And then maybe we'll lift one finger off just to see what happens. And then a second finger. And nothing yet. Then a third and a fourth until only one finger is, is left touching the cross. And then suddenly one day we might find ourselves going our own way. For we have forgotten all about the mercy of God that is only found in the cross. And yes, we might enjoy a really nice life with riches and nice house and a nice car and a loving family and good friends and laughter. But we will one day stand naked before a holy God. And we won't be holding fast to the cross. <coughs> And that will not be a good day for us because the fullness of God's wrath over our sin will be poured out upon our heads forever and ever and ever. And you know what? That's what happened to Prince Adonijah. King Solomon did show his brother mercy. and He allowed Adonijah to go home. But Adonijah soon forgot Solomon's mercy and he conspired against him. And this time there was no mercy. Adonijah was executed. He had forgotten and despised the mercy of the king, and he paid the price. We cling to the cross without wavering, because we know that he who promised mercy through the cross is faithful. He is a God who faithfully always keeps his promises. What a comfort that is, but also what a terror that is.
God always keeps his promises. He never breaks them. He would sooner cease to exist than break his promise. And that also includes the promise of his wrath. God will keep that promise too. God has promised through his word that he will send sinners to an eternity in the fires of hell. And he will absolutely keep that promise too. Just as he will keep the promise that he has made about the cross of his beloved son. That all those who truly trust in that sacrifice will be spared his holy wrath and enjoy eternity in his holy presence. So let us draw near. And also let us hold fast. And now we see the third let us command. Let us consider. That comes in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as we are drawing near in worship and as we are holding fast to the cross, what is our state of mind? We are commanded here to consider something. Consider what? We are to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. When you came to church this morning, why did you come? Did you come to see your friends? Did you come to sing some nice songs? Did you come to fulfill your religious duty for a week? Did you come to hear some teaching from the Bible? Did you come to get a little bit of entertainment? Or did you come with a specific purpose in mind? As scripture says here, today I want to see who I can stir up to love and good works. Verse 25 continues, it says, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. When Hebrews talks about meeting together, he is referring to coming together as a church in worship. And it is this verse right here, Hebrews 10, verse 25, where we see that coming to church to worship God through Jesus Christ is a command of Scripture. I want you to think about that for a moment. I want that to sink in a little bit. Coming to church for worship is a command of Scripture to Christians. What does that mean? That means if you neglect to meet together, you are in disobedience towards Scripture. Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus also said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus is present when his church, or he's present with his church when it gathers together in worship. When you neglect to come to church, you are not only disobeying scripture, you are thumbing your nose at Jesus. In effect, you are saying to Jesus, well, Jesus, you're nice and all, but I have better things to do than gather with your people to worship you. The Greek word that my version has for neglecting is, is more literally forsaking. Forsaking means to stop coming to church or, or, or not coming for long periods of time. But it also can become a habit where you forsake the corporate worship of Christ once a month or twice a month or three times a month. And, and maybe you find yourself patting yourself on the back because at least you go to church one time a month but you don't realize that you are in disobedience for the other three weeks. 
And you will often hear me say and reminding all of us that going to church does not save you. That's true. You cannot earn brownie points with God that will merit his favor by going to church. But the problem is that some people hear that and, and then they immediately think, oh, well then if I'm saved by faith alone, then I don't really have to go to church, do I? Or, or just once in a while when I feel like it, because hey, I'm saved by faith. But we have to understand that going to church to worship God through Jesus Christ is a major part of the fruit of the Christian life. A person who claims to be a Christian but neglects meeting together with fellow Christians for worship is not really bearing Christian fruit. A Christian who is forsaking church fellowship is not a growing Christian. A Christian who is neglecting church is a weak and sick wildebeest who has separated him or herself off from the herd. Just the kind of fresh meat the prowling lion is looking to devour. And I think there are very few legitimate reasons for a Christian to neglect corporate worship at church. I think I can count them on just one hand. For instance, if you're contagiously sick or if you're physically incapacitated or you don't have the means to travel. But if there's emergency or you must take care of a sick family member, if you're away on vacation. And I think if you're a Christian, you should really visit a church when you go on vacation. For vacation does not mean vacation from Jesus. Or if you're called in for work at your job. I think it's a very short list of legitimate reasons. And there may be a couple of other legitimate reasons. But my point here is that there's just a really a small number. If you're a Christian, Jesus must be your highest priority. Sunday does not belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. And there may be a whole host of illegitimate reasons or excuses to miss church and the worship of Jesus Christ. But at the end of the day, they're just excuses. And yes, I certainly understand that there are special cases and extenuating circumstances. And the examples I've given, they don't cover everything. And there will be times when you may be prevented from coming to church by things outside your control. But my point is that God knows your heart. And he knows if you are making an excuse or if it's a real reason. How you treat Christ's church reflects how you treat Christ. What you think about Christ's church reflects how you think about Christ. What you do with Christ's church reflects your attitude toward Christ. Missing church or coming in late to church is easy when you think of it as a religious duty. But when you view it properly, that it is an act of worship, that it is a spiritual discipline, it's a means of God's grace, then missing church or coming in late should cause you sorrow if you're a Christian. And Hebrews adds another thing that we're supposed to be doing. He says, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The spiritual reason for gathering together as the church is the worship of Christ and growing in him. But we're also to stir one another up to love and good works as well as to encourage one another. We are to encourage each other because the day of days is coming and that's swiftly. There's a close relationship between coming to church and the day of judgment. If the day of judgment is small in your eyes, then the church is going to be small in your eyes. 
If, however, the day of Christ's return is large in your eyes, then church will become large in your eyes. If a person stops coming to church or only comes intermittently or just once in a while, then that can be an indicator that the day of Christ, the day of his return, is getting smaller or has shrunk in their hearts. The more you meditate on eternity, on the day of judgment, on the wrath of God, on the good news of Jesus Christ, on the hope of salvation, on that day, the more you will desire to be with God's people. The more you will want to worship Christ, the more you will want to grow up in him, the more you will want to love his people and do good, the more you will want to stir them up to love and good works, the more you will want to encourage them. But of course, the opposite is also true. If you're not setting your mind on eternity or the day of judgment or the gospel, then then gathering with God's people will not be a priority. Worshiping Jesus will not be meaningful. Growing in him will definitely not feel very necessary. And then who cares about loving Christ's people and doing good? We see this connection, this, this intimate link between the two, between our view of the gospel, our view of Jesus, and the importance of gathering together with God's people. Verses 26 to 31 give us a stiff, stiff warning. Hebrews says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We will talk more about this section, what it means in the weeks to come, but I just include it here at the end to show what happens when we begin to fail in the three let us commands. When we begin to stop drawing near to worship, when we begin to loosen our grip on the gospel, when we neglect meeting together for worship and mutual encouragement, what happens? Well, ultimately we can move back underneath God's judgment with his wrath hanging over us. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a stern warning of Scripture. The sheep of Jesus Christ heed this warning and stay safe in his hand. The goats pretending to be sheep do not heed this warning and will eventually return to the world. You sheep of Jesus, draw near and worship. You sheep of Jesus, hold fast to the cross of mercy. You sheep of Jesus, consider how to encourage your fellow sheep in love and good works while meeting together. Let us pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your word. We are grateful for what it teaches us. And Father, we have heard stiff and stern and strong words from the book of Hebrews today. And let us not be a people that lets these things fly over our heads or 
go in one ear and out the other. But Father, let us be convicted of these things and let us repent, Father. Let us turn away from our selfishness and our self-centeredness to seek your face, Father, that we would draw close to you in worship, that we would hold fast to you, to hold fast to the gospel and to the cross, that we would consider how we may serve one another in meeting together and not forsaking it so that we can encourage one another all the more as we see that great day coming. Father, I pray for your grace in all of this. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would seek to grow in you in all things, Father. We would seek to to worship you in spirit and in truth so that you may be glorified in each of our lives. Father, help us to put these things into action. Father, let these commands hit us hard, that we examine ourselves and say and ask ourselves, am I drawing near to worship? Am I holding fast to the gospel? Am I neglecting to meet together or am I encouraging my brothers and sisters in Christ and being encouraged in return, especially as I see the day of Christ's return coming soon and coming swiftly? Father, I pray that you would grow Jesus Christ large in our eyes and grow his gospel large in our eyes and and grow the day of judgment and eternity large in our eyes so that these things would become precious to us. That we would see the value of meeting together and encouraging one another. It's not merely about checking off a religious checklist, but that the reason we come together is so that we can fellowship with one another and encourage one another and preach the gospel to one another and lift one another up when someone stumbles and be there for each other, Father, expressing that love towards one another that that Christ expected of his disciples. So, Father, challenge us this day. Let us think very deeply about all these things so that you may refine us and make us pure and conform us to the image of your beloved Son. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.